Hi. And good to see you guys. Thanks so much for being here. If you have your sweet Before All Things booklet, go ahead and grab that and turn to page 29. As you've already heard said multiple times today, we are in the third week of a teaching series called Before All Things. And this teaching series starts two years worth of ministry for the Church of 1122. And, and we've been looking at and asking this fundamental question, God, are you really before all things in our lives? And we've, over this, this course of this series, in these five weeks, we're really looking at, God, are you before all things in the area of our finances? And, and Pastor Joby, for the last two weeks, has been beautifully articulating the heartbeat of uh, stewardship and what God wants for us as his children in our finances. And so if you missed either one of those uh, pastor sermons, I would highly encourage you to go check those out on our website or on our app. Joby's been preaching his uh, brains out, and you do not want to miss Miss that, and he'll be here next week and the next two weeks where he's going to start really unfolding the vision uh, and the tangible steps that we feel like God's calling us to take as a church over the, next, over the next two years, and so you definitely don't want to miss that. In your book, let's turn to page 29, and we're going to dive right into uh, Before All Things uh, this morning, but before we do that, I just want to have a little confession time. Uh, and, and don't worry, I'm not going to bring you up here and go all open mic and make you confess to the, to the world anything. But I'm going to confess some things and, and, uh, uh, and just be honest and from wh- where I've been in this Before All Things journey. Months and months and months and months ago, Pastor Joby came to the team here and he began to articulate to us what he felt like God was leading us to do over the next couple of years and specifically about this, this teaching series. And I have to admit that at first I was really hesitant. I was really hesitant because of, of a few reasons, but I really kind of pushed back and was like, ah, I just don't know if we should do that. And I had all these internal wrestlings going on. And one of the things that I've realized through this wrestling is, is that my hesitations um, came from years and years of experiences and things that I could tell you all about, but, but ultimately strip all that away and, and my hesitations were rooted in fear. They were rooted in fear, and I was afraid of two things. Uh, one is that, is that if, if I were to go to my finances, and I were to go to the way that I stewarded resources, and I were to ask the question, God, are you before all things? For me to do that, I knew that without a doubt, for me to ask the question, God, are you before all things in my finances, I knew some things were going to have to change. And I don't like change. I like to be comfortable. I like things the way that, that they are. That's why I eat at Chick-fil-A six times a week. Because I like to know what I'm going to get, and I like fried chicken with cheese on it. And it makes sense to me. Right? So I, 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 I like to be comfortable. And I knew that if I were to ask this question, some things were going to have to change in order for me to honor God in my, in my finances. And I hadn't looked in a long time because I would gotten really comfortable in my generosity. And the second thing that I was afraid of was, was honestly, I was afraid that our people here would be unwilling to have a biblical conversation about money. And I thought that people would get upset and leave the church and, or, you know, whatever. And usually I'm the guy here that if you're upset about something, you're going to somehow inevitably you're going to end up in my office. And I was like, man, it's going to be a lot of work. And, and through this Before All Things journey, I have actually learned that the opposite is true for most of the people of this church. This church is amazing. We have some of the most 
amazing people I have ever been around in my life, the most amazing people that I have ever worked with, done ministry with, been able to serve with, they are here at the church of 1122. And God has used the response of our people, and God has used their willingness to go first in generosity, not just in their finances, but with their time and with their talent as well. And through this, I have learned so much about what God wants for me by spending time with our people. And and some of these stories, some of these families that I've been able to spend time with, we were able to capture their story on testimony. And I want to share it with you in hopes that it would encourage you the way that it's encouraged me. So let's check it out. Hi, my name's Scott Batch, and this is my wife, Janice. Uh, We've been coming to the Church of 1122 for about three years. Uh, We started attending uh, right after the launch. We have four kids, uh, three boys, one girl, uh, age nine, seven, five, and four. We serve in uh, the new gen area on Thursday morning to help prepare the rooms uh, for the uh, Thursday night service. Uh, The kids stock the snacks, the water, Um, We've also been involved uh, with the new gen check-in process. Uh, We've helped with the compassion events. Uh, We've been uh, involved in uh, two mission trips over the last two years, uh, one overseas and one here locally. As we've been involved in 1122, I feel we've seen God work a lot in our children. Um, They ask why we serve. They ask questions like, Does everybody serve? Does God ask us to serve? Um, Since Hope's Closet is open, they've asked a lot of questions about why we opened Hope's Closet, who's working there, who comes and gets stuff. So I see a lot of work going through our children, and when they see us serve, they're wanting to join in with us. At the age of seven, I decided with four children that our birthday parties, instead of getting gifts that they needed to learn, we need to give versus receive. Lots of toys in the home, so we thought, well, let's start teaching you this portion of serving. So Colby is our oldest, and we approached him, and he was fine with it, and I told him he needed to come up with something, and of course, myself, Scott, and my, my own mother um, helped him, and he came up on his own and said, I want to collect money for a playground. My parents decided when we turned seven, and instead of receiving we should give for birthdays and I decided that I should give money for a playground because I knew I enjoyed it and I wanted to give more joy and then my parents found out that Pastor Wayne from Jamaica um, needed a, some help building a playground so I gave um, the $265 to there. You know right from the beginning when we approached Colby about this uh, he He has such a great heart, such a warm heart, that he accepted it right away. He wasn't disappointed that he wasn't going to be getting gifts, and he realized the importance of, you know, giving something back and and something to others that aren't as fortunate. So uh, it was great to see the Lord working through his heart. It's okay sometimes to give for those people that need. I give, it makes me feel like my heart is growing, my soul and God's coming closer to me in my relationship with Him. Before All Things initiative is, it's not just a capital campaign, it's an opportunity for us to be involved in a campaign that is gonna help save lives, help other people reach Jesus, 
help everybody refocus on, you know, putting Christ first. One of the things we've had to do is sit down and look hard at our budget and, you know, just where we have waste, you know, just make sure we have everything in alignment uh, so that we can, uh, we can support the Before All Things initiative in, in all aspects. When we think of the truth that Christ really is before all things, we think about the material things we have in this world and how they're just, they're so minuscule and they're not important uh, compared to our relationship with the Lord. And we all need to, to understand and focus and deepen our relationship with Christ uh, so that we really do put Him first. We make sure we you know, give our time, our resources, our financial resources, you know, that we're considering him first before anything else. We are the Batch family. And, and he, he is before, before all things. All right. I love that. I love uh, that, that video and I love the story. And there's a part where little Colby says something along the lines of, of giving produces joy in me. And what little Colby probably doesn't know is that he's actually a theologian, and, and, and that's, a, that's a brilliant thing to say. Uh, John Piper says it like this. He says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And what he means is that the joy of the human heart and the joy of the human existence is completely married to God's glory being revealed through it's people, and so as we show who God is through our generosity and through the giving of our time and talent and treasures, God gets glorified, and as He gets glorified, our joy begins to grow. Little Colby said that in a sentence, but it still remains, it still remains true. So as I was hesitant to do this, this series, God has completely transformed my heart on this topic through the power of the testimony of the families in, in this church and the people that God has brought here, and also through his words, specifically the passage that we're going to be looking at today in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your books, open them up. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24. I'm going to take you on the journey that God has had me on uh, to help transform my heart in this area and to help my right-size my thinking about what He wants for me in the area of, of finances. Matthew six nineteen says this, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So when Jesus starts this teaching, he, he brings up this idea of treasure. And he says that your treasure and your heart are married. That you, Wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is most. And so we have to ask this question, what is Jesus talking about in this idea of treasure? This is the foundation to understanding the rest of what Jesus has for us. And so to treasure something, this is a great definition uh, that we can understand what it means to treasure something. To treasure something means that, that it, it means to, to value something 
as the means by which beauty and joy are found, and any cost is worth paying to have or keep. It's what makes everything else worth having. And so in order to begin to identify the treasure of our lives, we have to begin to ask the question, what is it that makes everything else worth having? What is it that makes everything else worth enjoying? What is it that we see everything else's value through? A great way to think about this or maybe a simpler way to diagnose our treasure would be to to ask this question. What is the primary filter by which I make decisions? What is the primary filter that I make decisions through? So for example, why did you pick your job? Some of you may say, well, I didn't pick my job. I actually hate my job. Thanks for bringing it up. Well, at some point in your decision-making process, you had to decide to work. So why did you pick the job that you have? Did you pick your job because it honors God? Because it reinforces God's purposes in creation? Because it helps people know who God is and His plan for their life? Did you pick your job because you knew it was going to put you in a position by which you could make God known? And you could declare to others God's worth and God's value and you could help them see who Jesus is and what Jesus wants for them? Did you pick your job because of that? Or did you pick your job because of what it pays? Right? The primary filter by which we make decisions shows us very quickly what we really, really treasure. The point is this, that it's pretty easy to see what our treasure is if we just track the decisions that we make. You see, you can hide your intentions and you can hide your, we, we can hide all of our, our intentions and all the, the things that we think we want. We can hide them with our words, but our behaviors rat us out every time. Right? You cannot hide the treasure of your life from your behaviors. Your behaviors will tell you exactly what you treasure every time without question. So Jesus goes on to, to start to challenge us and start to ask us really hard questions in verse 19. He says this, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. What's Jesus talking about? Why is he bringing up moths and rust? We have to think about how moths and rust work. Moths and rust both, both work the same way in this. That whatever it is they're trying to destroy, they do it over time. Moths and rust both take their time in their path of destruction. Meaning, I don't know how your grandma rolled when you were growing up, but my grandma was all about some mothballs. I don't know if you've ever been able to enjoy the goodness of the Lord through the deep swift of a mothball, but it will change the direction of your life without a doubt. But mothball's purpose is to stop moths from destroying clothes over time. And nobody has ever said, I'm deathly afraid of moths. Nobody's laying in bed thinking about the, they're not having like anxiety attacks over the fact that there's moths flying around the streetlights. Moths really aren't that big a deal, and neither is rust. Right? We really don't think about them because they're really not that, that big a deal, but over time, they're completely destructive. And in the same way, in our culture today, a great example of the moth and rust of our day is consumer debt. See, consumer debt seems manageable. It's really, really subtle in its early stages, but over time, 
It will, destroy, it will destroy our financial freedom. It will take our freedom that God has purpose for us in our finances, and it will rob us, and it will destroy us. You see, consumer debt is one of those things that it's really a head-scratcher if we could just get out of our culture for a minute and look at it. I mean, who has ever sat back and thought that a credit card company had their best interest at heart? I mean, nobody. Nobody's ever been like, you know what? I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this, I'm not even going to say a brand name because they might sue me, but I'm, I'm going to say, I'm not going to get this card that's, that's going to tune me up for about 20% interest because they really care about me. No, 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 seriously, I get all the points and I get all the rewards and you don't get it. It's, it's a points-based system and I'm going to be rolling like a big ball of flying on a private jet. Look at my credit card, y'all. Nobody's ever said that. Nobody's ever actually thought that consumer debt was a good thing for them. But consumer debt's a vicious cycle because what it is is that we, we want things that we don't have the money to pay for, and so we borrow that money. And we borrow the money via a credit card or some other kind of consumer debt mechanism. We borrow that money to have things that we, we think we need, but we really probably almost always don't need. We just really, really want them to make us feel better. And so our need is to feel better, not the stuff. And so we buy all this stuff with money we don't have, thinking that one day we will have it, and then this stuff starts to own us. Because this stuff's not, we had it for about 30 minutes before it lost its flavor and we realized it really couldn't help us feel better. And so now we don't even want it anymore. And now we got all the debt and the interest. Consumer debt's a nasty, a nasty cycle. We all, know, we all know too well. And the truth is that consumer debt is almost always a gospel issue. We look at the resources that God has given us and we say, not enough, I need something else, I need more. God, what you've done and what you've given me is not enough. For whatever reason, this is what I have. I don't want it. I want more, so I'm going to get some debt in order to get it. And then you're a slave to the debt. See, Pastor Joby calls this the cul-de-sac of stupidity. His word's not mine. The, uh, the cul-de-sac of stupidity. And here's what the cul-de-sac is. It's, it's when we find ourselves in a place where the stuff that we own actually owns us. You see, materialism begins to promise us safety and security and happiness in that we think it will make us feel better. But it is always unable to deliver on its promise. And the nasty part of it is that, that it will always fail us. When we put our, our feeling better in the hands of stuff, it will let us down every time without question, but it will not let us bail on our end of the deal and it will charge us 27%. We have to fulfill our end while it has completely let its end down and we got to pay not just what we didn't have, but now we got to pay interest on the money we never had in the first place. And now you're a slave. Consumer debt is a great example of what it looks like to be in the cul-de-sac or, or what, how moth and rust destroy. It seems subtle and manageable, but before you, know, before you know it, it's out of control. See, God has something else for us, and this, this something else is called biblical generosity, and it's rooted in the idea of, of financial freedom that God has purposed in a plan for us. And so for us to get off the cul-de-sac and for us to get on track with God-honoring finances that, that are purposed on His intentions, we have to start asking some real questions. And, and one question that we can ask as we begin to consider where God wants us to be generous and where God wants us to purpose our resources, a great question to ask is, is, is this. Is the organization or is the place that I'm in, is where God has me or, or what God has me considering, is it a good place 
for me to steward my resources? Or is it a good place for me to make an investment? Or whatever words you take. As a, a, a steward of God's resources, you should ask good questions. You should say, is this the right thing for me to use all that God has given me for His glory? You should ask that question. Or is this a good investment with my time, with my talent, and with my treasure when looking at any opportunity that God puts in front of you? For sure, you should ask that question. But I would say this, when we start asking questions, um, we can ask rightly placed questions with the wrong intentions. But we can also ask rightly placed questions with the right intentions. And so the most important part of any question that we ask is what's the motivation? What's the motivation of the question? So when I ask questions about kingdom investment, and I do it from a place of fiscal stewardship and kingdom responsibility, meaning that Without a doubt, my life says I want to be all about God. I want to be all about Jesus. I want to be all about people surrendering their lives to God and being a part of His movements. And when my life is, is saying that, it's a very right question for me to say, should I invest my time, talent, and treasure here? I did it about 1122 before I moved down here 18 months ago. And I, I asked the question, is this the right place where you would have me invest what you've trusted me with, God? Sometimes I've asked that question from the right place, but sometimes I've asked it with a, a wrong intention or a wrong motivation. And, and I begin to start to put things of the Lord in terms by which I can control. And I start to ask questions not from the interest of kingdom advancement, but from the interest of self-preservation. And when I fall into that mode, I have to have a conversation with myself. And here's what that conversation sounds like. So we're going to pretend for a minute that you're me, lucky you, and I'm kidding, it's not that great. And we're going to pretend that you're, you're, you're me and that I'm me. And that we're going to have a conversation. Since you're me and I'm me, we know each other really, really well. And I know that you're asking me a question from, an, from a place that is mostly rooted in self-preservation. And, and because you're really, really smart, and you have an uncanny ability to convince yourself in and out of things that are, are possibly dishonoring to God, then, then I know how you work, because you're me. And so you ask me this question, you would say, me and you are having a conversation, or me and me are having a conversation, we're all obviously over coffee. And you would say, okay, Ryan, is 11.22 a good investment? This is where I am, this is where God has me, is it a good investment? And I would have to push back on myself and say, all right, well, let me ask you a question. Are you a good investment for God? I mean, are you a good investment for God? And, and I would sit there and I would say to myself, well... My hair's leaving my head and going to my nose, my ears and my back. I'm not, quite as, I'm not quite as skinny as I used to be. I'm not agile like a cat like I once was. I'm an alright husband sometimes. I'm a decent father, I guess. I mean, compared to some, I do okay. There are a lot of people out there worse than me, so yeah. Yeah, I'm a good investment. And then I would have to explain to myself the gospel. See, because the gospel is not set up in terms of investment in return, like we like to operate in our world. And so this is what I would say to myself. I would say, well, Ryan, since your answer seems to be yes, I need to explain to you the gospel. See, God did not send Jesus to ensure his profit return. He didn't send Jesus because he thought you were a good investment. The beauty of the gospel is, Ryan, that, that you were created in God's image and that that image has an immense amount of value, that it is the most valuable 
thing of everything that he created, and he has the most worth placed on his image. But you and it, it, you chose something else. You did not want his image stamped on you. You wanted to be him. And so you chose a life other than what he had for you. And when you did that, you separated yourself from him eternally. And, and, and even though that you chose something other than God and you chose to dishonor him and live in a way that did not please him, he did not leave you there because you were trapped in worthlessness. You were trapped in hopelessness. You had, no, you had nowhere to go. You were stuck, Ryan, but God didn't leave you there. God in his infinite goodness and his infinite grace sent Jesus to redeem his image, to purchase back what had been lost, to, to fix the, the mistakes that you made, to restore his image and his purpose. You see, Ryan, God did, not, God did not invest in you. God purchased you. He purchased you. Even in your rebellion, He secured your eternity at great cost to Himself on the, on the cross, Ryan. He poured everything out to buy you back. And so it's not about investment banking or, or, pro, or profit measuring. You see, Ryan, when we think about investment Investment banking, we really think of it as a two-way street. We think of that we put in and then we get out. We'll put our money in or our time in or our, our abilities in and then we'll start to see a return. But in God's economy, it, there's not, it's not a two-way street. It's a one-way deal. That God's economy is set up on a one-way love. It is a one-way plan that runs in one direction, which is God to us. And all we do is sit here and receive it because he has purposed it and planned it and he pours it out. It's a one-way deal. It's a one-way deal. So God is the author and God is the finisher, Ryan. Think about it like this, Ryan. Imagine that you had $50 million in debt to one banking institution. You owed them $50 million in debt, and then you broke into that bank to try to steal money from them to pay them with money that you owed them. You're stealing their money to pay them the money you owe them. And in that process, you get caught. And you're caught and you go to prison. And while you're in prison, somehow, along the way, you begin to convince yourself that, you know what, you didn't owe them anything anyway. You didn't owe them, and you shouldn't be in prison. Honestly, they owed you that money. And so while you're in prison thinking that you're owed all this money, the banker whom you stole from and whom you owed shows up and says, hey, guess what, I'm going to cancel all your debt. I'm going to cancel all your debt. And I'm going, to absorb, I'm going to absorb it all, no problem. And the, the jail cell door opens and you walk out and you're like, oh, well, this is great. And then as, as you're walking out, the banker steps in and you bump shoulders with the banker. And you're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? And he's like, no, no, I'm going to cancel your debt. I'm going to absorb your debt and I'm going to pay the penalty for your crimes. I'm going to lock myself up so that you can go free. And you're like, whoa. Uh. And then they, they escort you out with the banker in prison. They escort you out of the jail and puts you in his limousine and his limousine drives you to the bank and when you walk in the bank the doors open and everybody's clapping welcome in welcome in welcome in and the father of the banker who just paid your debt pay, pay, pay the penalty of your crimes walks up to you and hugs you and says i am so glad that you're here i'm so glad that you're here not only did my son cancel your debt absorb your penalty and pay for your crimes he also wrote you into the family trust and so now everything that we will ever have, you get to share in forever and ever. Not because you did anything to deserve it, but because we love you and we can. Do you see that this is not investment banking, this is grave robbing. 
This is jailbreaking. That is what God does. It's not about a return. Yeah, thank you, the two of you who got that. Thanks. <laughs> the rest of you are like, oh, God. Right? I mean, what do you say to that? It's like, oh. Like, again, I'm just having a conversation with myself. You just happen to be here. But this is a one-way deal. See, the gospel is not set up on an exchange return type thing. It's not like you put some stuff in and you get 10% out. I think you should definitely look at things in this world like that. I mean, don't be stupid and invest in stocks that are going to lose all your money. But that's not how the kingdom, that's not how the kingdom set up. And so Jesus has something different. In verse 22, he says this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. You see, the, the, the problem with money is much deeper than how we spend it. Spending is a symptom. Spending money is just a symptom. The problem with money is that money has power. It has power. You know it. I know it. The amount of things that we have seen money destroy in our lifetime, the amount of families, the amount of businesses, the amount of, of uh, just e even moral-based decision-making, we've seen money rob our culture around every, every corner because money has power. It has power. And, and I'm not going to say the dollar bill in and of itself is a bad thing. And of course, God gives us resources. And so what we could intend for evil, God can purpose for good. But money does have power. There is no doubt about it. And the power of money is that it's blinding. It's blinding. It keeps us from seeing the truth. And that's what Jesus is saying when he's saying that, that you, don't, you, you don't have a, a spending problem per se. You have an eye problem. The issue is not how you spend your money. The issue is how you see the world because how you see the world informs how you see money. And so I want to show you what I'm talking about. My, my old pastor showed me this and it's something that, that really began to stir around in me. And, and so we're going to talk about worldviews. How do we see the world? Because how we see the world determines everything else. There are two popular worldviews or dominant worldviews in our culture, things that we would agree upon. For the most part, and I'm going to grossly oversimplify and make some generalizations, but for the most part, there's two ways to think about the world. There's a, a Christian way, which we'll start with, but I'm not going to just call it a Christian way because I think in our culture, the term Christian gets misused, let's just say, quite a bit. So we're, we're, we're going to call it a biblical worldview, but even a more focused way than that is we're going to call it a gospel worldview. This is way that, the way that the Bible, that God says we should see the world. You see, a gospel worldview starts with this right here. It starts with Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. That this is his deal, that God created the world for Jesus. God created the world through Jesus. God created the world by Jesus. And everything in the world is coming back to Jesus. Jesus is the point. We just got done singing it in him, for him, by him, through him, to him. He is before all things. That is the gospel. That is the, the root of the gospel-centered worldview and, and and so that God created everything through Jesus and for Jesus and everything's coming back to Jesus but God created the world God created everything in it including 
man, and man was the, the jewel of his creation, the thing that carried the most amount of value to God was man because God imprinted his image on man. So man has all this value, but whatever God has given man is not enough to man, and so man seeks something else. Man says, no thanks God, I got it, I want to be you, I'm gonna wa- I want to be in control. And when man did this, man became sinners. We became sinners and we were separated from God and we were eternally trapped in our own, in, in, our, in our cycle of sinfulness. But God did not leave us there. God sent us a Savior. And again, this Savior is Jesus. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to redeem God's image and to purchase us back for God's purposes. And in this, he did a thing called, uh, he purchased us for a reason. He purchased us so that... Not only could he have his image back, but the way that he gets his image back is by making us holy. He gave us a means by which we can know him. And the way that we know God and the way that we make God known is through holy living. Meaning to honor God and to honor what God wants for us in all facets of our life. Jesus secured us, meaning Jesus set us apart for God. That's what it means to be be holy. And part of this holy living, we know that as we live holy and we seek Jesus first in his kingdom, that one day we will get to go to heaven, and heaven will be our home. And we know that this earth is temporary. This earth is just a place that we are passing through, that we are not going to be here forever, that the best thing on this earth is paled in comparison to the treasures of heaven that await God's children. This place is not home. This is just, we're just passing through. If you've ever been to Sunday school, a simple way to understand this worldview is this. The answer to every question is Jesus. What time is it? Jesus. What what are we going to eat for dinner? Jesus. Where are we going next? Jesus. When in doubt, go with Jesus in this worldview. This is the way we see the world according to the gospel. A A really simple way to think about it is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's a gospel centered worldview. Okay? So that's worldview number one. Worldview number two is a non-gospel, or let's just say non-Christian or gospel or whatever you want to say. Now, I'm going to oversimplify this, but ultimately in every non-Christian worldview, there is no God. There is no God. And since there is no God, creation happened somehow. You know, let's just go with the Big Bang today. Big Bang meaning there was some stuff running around in complete darkness, and then they smacked into each other, and poof, you got it all. So some stuff started somehow by something somewhere, somewhere out there in space. Stuff started because that's what it does somehow. Good? All right. So you got Big Bang, or you got unexplained creation for the most part, and because there's no God, and there's no ultimate, no ultimate authority, and there's no uh, intentional design, there's no ruler, then there's no sin because there's nobody to rebel against. And so if there's nobody to rebel against, then you're good because there's, no, uh, there's no sin or ultimate authority. And because there's no sin, you don't need a Savior. Because there's no sin, you don't have to worry about things like heaven and hell because there's nothing to look forward to in heaven. And there's definitely no hell, so there's nothing to be afraid of. Those things ultimately don't exist because there's no sin and there's no, there's no God. In this worldview, earth is home. This is all we got. And so in picture form, a good way to think about it is like this. Here you are, you're this big X on earth. There's nothing up here, so you have no eternal motivation by which you would live. 
Everything is about here and now. And so while you're here, you're living, and, and the ultimate goal is to eat, drink, and be merry. And if you're lucky, you'll have a couple of kids, and you'll hate them your whole life, and then you'll die, and it's all over. Right? And so over here, the process by which we make decisions is completely rooted in this right here. Feelings. How we feel informs how we live. Feelings are ultimately God. Make no mistake, both worldviews require a whole lot of faith. But over here, the ultimate goal is to be happy. Be happy while you're here. That's one worldview. This worldview here in picture form looks like this. You're here and you're on earth and up here in the clouds. It's not the best clouds you've ever seen. Uh, up here in the clouds is heaven. And this is home. And while we're down here, we're looking up here and we're saying, Jesus, come and get us. We cannot wait to be home. We are eternally motivated because we know that this world is not what life's all about. We are aliens in a foreign land. We are just passing through on our way home to see our dad. And our dad has treasures waiting and an endless amount of worth that he is going to share with us because he is good and he is God. And so we're looking to heaven saying, we want to go home. We want to go home. And Jesus says, I know you do. And because I know you do, I've actually put that in your heart. And so I came and I died on the cross for your sins, purchasing you out of this place. And more importantly, out of the opposite of heaven, which is hell, I purchased you out of that so that while you're here, you can make me known. You can make me known and you can let other people know who I am and you can let them know what I have done. But your primary goal or the primary means by which you make me known is that you live holy. You live holy. See, over here the goal is happy. Over here the goal is holy. Because this is not where we belong. We belong here. And holiness is the means by which we begin to enjoy here, here. There's a third worldview, unfortunately, that has arisen in the last couple of, couple of decades. And we're just going to call this worldview Americanism. Now, Americanism is a, is a syncretistic or a blended worldview. It's, it's really, really confused to say, to say the least. And in Americanism, here's the deal. We believe that there is a God, but we do not believe that that God demands holiness. We are all about God. We are just not all about what God wants and God's primary purposes, right? And so we don't believe He demands holiness. We, we, we are all for the fact that there is a Savior, that there is somebody that can help us get to heaven, but we don't really want a Lord. We want somebody to save us, we just don't want somebody to rule us. That's Americanism. You see, over here in Americanism, we do believe that there is sin, but we believe it's this ethereal thing that happens outside of us. That it's, not really, it's not really our deal, it's just something that happens in foreign countries where they kill each other. And so, because sin's really not that big a deal, and we're not wicked, black-hearted sinners, we don't really need to repent. So now we're good. We don't need to repent, even though the number one thing that Jesus preached was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, 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 repent. This is the deal. You're here, and in order to be here, you got to do this. But in Americanism, we don't need that because we're not that bad. We're all for the fact that Jesus paid for our sins, but we are not interested in picking up our cross and following him daily. See, 
in this worldview, we want all the reward of heaven while we store up treasures on earth. We want everything here, but we do not want to pick up our cross. We do not want to repent. We do not want to surrender to Jesus as Lord. And we do not want to practice holiness because this is the road marked with suffering. This is a road of sacrifice. This is a road of stretching. This is a road where we have to die to ourselves and we have to say, whatever you want, Lord, at whatever cost, you are my treasure. The problem with Americanism is that it's not real. It's a unicorn. It's a fabled creature. It's completely confused. It's not biblical at all. Jesus says it like this. He says in verse 24, nobody can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's what Jesus is saying. You cannot have dual worldviews and be a follower of Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus without following Jesus. You can't be a disciple of Jesus without being a learner who does what Jesus says. Jesus is saying you can't have two masters. You cannot have dual world views. You cannot simultaneously look at two different things that are completely opposite of one another and focus on them both at the same time. You cannot do it. Your eyes cannot do it and your souls cannot do it. Our soul cannot see two things as primary at the same time. Something has to come first. So Jesus is saying you cannot serve two masters. You can't simultaneously look to this world and look to him. You can't simultaneously say, this world is my security, my retirement funds are my security, my, my investments are my security, my bank account number is my security. You can't look at that as your security and look at Jesus and say, you're my security too. Something has to come first. You can't look to this world and to your money as significance. I can't look and say, okay, I, I feel good about myself and I feel better based on this amount of money in my bank account. I can't look to it for significance and look to Jesus for my significance. Jesus is saying you can't serve two masters. So how do we know? How do we know what worldview we fall under? Well, I think a really good question that helps diagnose our worldview is this. What do you think about when you think about heaven? If you want to know how you see this world, all you got to do is ask the question about what you see in the next. So what do you think about when you think about heaven? Do you think about the fact that your family's going to be there and that everything's going to be happy? You think about your house and how big it's going to be. You think about all the activities that you're going to get to do. Think about all the pleasures that you're going to get to enjoy. I mean, when you think about heaven, do you think about about seeing people you haven't seen in a long time? And do you think about, uh, about having access to everything with an unlimited supply? You see, when you think about heaven, what you think about tells you how you see the world. Because if you think about heaven, and all those things I just described are the first things you think about, or those are the things that you look forward to most, then this is where you fall. Because in your heaven, you're the point. All you're really doing is thinking about your life, just a better version of it. You see, if comfort and happiness to you are the point of heaven, then you're the point of heaven. 
then you're the point of heaven. But in a gospel worldview, when we think about heaven, we think about something else. We think about Jesus because he is the treasure of heaven. He's the point. In the Bible, Jesus is the point of heaven. Not me, not you, not us. You see, when, when you have a gospel-centered worldview and you begin to think about heaven, you begin to think about, about Jesus' face. And you begin to think about him grabbing you and pulling you into his, his chest and embracing you with a supernatural unending love. When you think about heaven, you begin to hear the roar of his voice and you begin to think about the rivers of heaven that are overflowing with God's mercy and God's goodness and God's grace. And you begin to hear the sound of angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When you think about heaven and you begin to fix your eyes on Jesus, you begin to realize that everything that you believed in faith now, you fully see and you see that it was worth every second. It was worth every question. It was worth every intention. It was worth every dollar that you gave. It was worth every hour that you, that you served. It was worth every single bit of anything that felt like sacrifice. When you see Jesus face to face, you're going to go, this really was the deal. This really was the deal. You see, in a gospel-centered worldview, Jesus is the point. Jesus is the point. So I would ask you this question. What are the eyes of your soul fixed on? Which worldview do you have? When you think about heaven, what do you think about? No heaven? Your heaven? Or Jesus? So I'm not saying when we get to heaven, it's not going to be an unending amount of joy and goodness and then we're not going to get to enjoy all these things I'm just saying those things aren't the point comfort and happiness are a byproduct they're secondary at best if they're even on the scale Jesus is the point so when your soul sets its eyes what does your soul look at and you would say Ryan what does this have to do with biblical generosity what does this really have to do with finances everything everything if Jesus is going to be the point of your heart then, then he is the point of your heart now. If Jesus is going to be your treasure then, then he's your treasure now. And when Jesus is your treasure, your life just shows it. Your finances too. Your finances too. So it's got everything to do with generosity. I think the most important question we can answer today is, what's your treasure? When we look in the face of our treasure, we respond to God appropriately. We either respond with rejoicing or we respond with repentance. Let's pray together. If you're here and the money has power in your life and you know it, it's just got too much power And I would invite you to come and repent and do business with God. We have prayer altars. We have a prayer team down here. They want to pray with you. They're going to pray over you. I would invite you to come and do business with God. You can't take steps toward being surrendered to Jesus unless you take steps toward surrendering to Jesus. 
So maybe here today you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, and I would say, come and do that. Come and tell Jesus that you have had your treasure set on the wrong things and that you want Him to be the Lord and the ruler of your life. And He will start to work on you and He will meet you right where you are, but He will not leave you there. He will change you forever. So I would invite you to come and respond to God. We respond to God here through singing. We respond to God here through giving. Some of you need to go and and give at the giving boxes. Take back to God what God has so generously given to you. Some of you need to come and surrender your lives to Jesus. Whatever it is God is stirring you to do, I would invite you to come and respond to Him appropriately. So Heavenly Father, we love you more than anything. And I pray that in this room today that we would see you as our treasure. That we would see you as our ultimate value. That we would see you as our worth that we would see you as the means by which we enjoy everything else, that you would be first, that you would be before all things, that you would be the point. We thank you that you have done so much for us so graciously and so generously. Pray that as we respond to you, that we would draw near to where you are. In your name we pray. Amen. If you will stand with me, we're going to respond together.